Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now age of radio this podcast contains adult content Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. They got him outside this motion picture theater. Wild excitement. Billinger killed by federal agents commanded by Inspector Samuel Cowley, assisted by East Chicago, Indiana police. The belongings of public enemy number one. Three men couldn't carry Dillinger's collection of deadly weapons seized at various places. He had this automatic in hand when killed. His fingerprints, the infallible sign. He spent $5,000 to have them altered with acid, but it failed. 300 points of similarity remained. His face made over, but the G-men recognized him. The eyes and the shape of his head. Tagged in the morning. So we have no new Patreon supporters for this episode, but I do have to give a special birthday shout out to Kristen Reed. Her husband, Sean, hit me up actually about, I don't know, a month ago or so, uh, wanted me to say something, tell her happy birthday. He told me she was a huge Dillinger fan, and I said, hey, how about we wait until I put out the Dillinger episodes uh, about his death? He said, hell yeah. So happy belated birthday, Kristen. I hope you had a good time, and your old man also is in the $10 tier on Patreon, so I can't wait to drink some beers with you guys over a video call and talk about all kinds of stuff. So with that being said, those of you on Patreon also know that I did about a little 20-25 minute rant a few months back about this episode that I am about to do and it's not just one episode I'll be honest it's probably going to be three because there's a lot of stuff to talk about back about two years ago actually almost exactly two years I was uh potentially involved in a Dillinger documentary that was going to be done by the history channel we were going to go down there and exhume him to see if it was really him the cemetery put a stop to it Uh, I believe it was kinetic content 
out of California that was involved in that as well, along with a retired FBI guy. Uh, I will not name him. Uh, I don't know. I might in a future episode. Uh, just some of the conversations that we had, why they think that he survived. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, most of the research that they're going on is either family stories, which we should also know that not all the family agrees that this is not Dillinger or Dillinger for that matter. They're they're kind of split. But a lot of their theories and, and stuff is based off of the work of J. Robert Nash. J. Robert Nash wrote two books, has done several interviews, articles related to Dillinger not being the man who was shot in July of 34 outside the Biograph Theater. A lot of this research is going to come from J. Robert Nash. I will say that he did phenomenal work. I won't even bullshit. This dude spent 15 years researching this. He wrote his first book after the first two years of research. He wrote his second book about 15 years after he started the research. Two phenomenal books. There's also another book and a couple other articles I'm going to quote as I go along. Uh, this first episode, though, is going to be a synopsis. I'm going to tell you some of the information to how this theory got presented and why it is believed that he did not die. And this is going to be pretty much solely based on J. Robert Nash and the work that he did, the people he interviewed, some of the people that he worked with for that matter. So with that being said, you guys know that I am super weird about historical figures and I'm super weird about corroborating information. 90% of this information cannot be corroborated because it was all one-on-one -on -one interviews. None of them were recorded. None of them were televised, recorded, audio, or video. None of the which. And if they were, they haven't never seen the light of day. And to be honest with you, those interviews, whether being on audio or video for that matter, that would be beneficial to this argument. Now, as a podcaster doing what I do, I have to stay impartial. My job is to provide you with all the facts, both sides of the information, and to let you decide for yourself. Now, I will admit going into this, it was very hard for me to not have confirmation bias. It was hard for me not to be biased in general because I want Dillinger to have lived, all right? But when you start getting down this rabbit hole, which is a lot of information, you you have to keep that in mind. And I know some of you are probably sitting back listening to this like, this guy's a fucking idiot. John Dillinger died. I get that. That's fine. Then you can turn this episode off right fucking now because you're not going to like any of this series. But all I ask is that you keep an open mind. You listen to the information presented. There is information that is factual. I will say that. But there is also a lot of information that is based on interviews that one man did. And he wrote two books about them. Now, at the end of this series, I will give you guys some inside info about why the documentary did not get made. I will tell you what I was told by kinetic content out there in uh, Hollywood. I will tell you about some conversations between me and the other people involved, whether I was going to be involved or not. I don't know. doesn't really matter now. What happened was they shot the documentary anyway, 
And one thing that you have to remember when you do eventually watch this documentary is that every documentary is funded by somebody. There is somebody paying for this documentary, whether it's independent or backed by a network. If it's independent, it's probably going to be more biased because they are trying to sell an agenda. That's the whole purpose of making a documentary is to push your argument. You're not going to be open-minded. You have your tunnel vision. This is how it is. This is how it isn't. You're not going to provide both sides of that argument. So keep that in mind. Like I said, the last episode I do, I don't know. I can probably wrap this up in two episodes. It'll, it might end up being three, though, to be perfectly honest with you. But anyway, in the last episode, I will drop some knowledge bombs and uh, some of the information that was passed on to me and stuff like that. So that should be fun. But I do have to state some sources. Like I said, there's a few books here. One of which is a book called Dillinger, The Untold Story, The Anniversary Edition from 2009. It was written by William J. Helmer and G. Russell Gerardin. How this book came about is William J. Helmer, who was an editor for Playboy, he was researching a book on Depression-era outlaws. And of course, if you're going to write a book about that, you got to have a huge, the biggest chapter on John Dillinger. So while he was doing this, he came across a 600-page manuscript about John Dillinger, and it was written in the 1930s by G. Russell Gerardin, but it was never published. And it was all about his life and crimes, and it was based partly on information that was given to Gerardin by Louis Paquette, who was Dillinger's lawyer. And this was interviews and information shortly after Dillinger's death. So this whole 600-page manuscript just sat on a shelf for like 50 years. And then Helmer ended up meeting Gerard and basically said, hey, let's get this published. We can do this together. I want to help you. Like, we got to get this done. So that was Dillinger, The Untold Story. There is a regular one, and there's an anniversary edition. The anniversary edition, like said, is 2009. That's the one I went off of because it has more information. It has more pictures. It has more FBI information, FBI files, stuff like that. Highly suggest it. It's a great book. The other couple books are by J. Robert Nash. One is entitled Dillinger, Dead or Alive. It was published in 1970, and it was written with Ron Offen. The other one is probably the best source of information if you want to do a deep dive on Dillinger yourself. It has so much information, and it is entitled The Dillinger Dossier, and it was published in 1983. I'm also going to be taking some information from an interview that J. Robert Nash did with Roger Ebert in 2009. And yes, Nash is still alive. I think he's 84 or 85 years old now. This dude started writing and researching for this in like 1968. All right. He didn't get it done till about 1983. And he did a one-off book, like I said, two years after he started his research. So there's a lot of shit. And Nash is not just, you know, some, uh, some schmuck, you know, he's, a very good writer. He was a hell of a good researcher. He had a lot of help, a lot of boots on the ground, but yeah, he is still alive. I tried reaching out to him. I can't even find this dude's email address. Uh, I'm going to be looking for it here before I wrap up the series some more, 
Um, you can usually get a hold of authors through their publishers, blah, 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 blah. All I want is a fucking email. So J. Robert Nash, if you're listening, reach out to me, dude. Let's, let's get this done. So how this all started with Nash, his book, The Dillinger Dossier, began in the spring of 1968. Like I said, took him 15 years to do. When he started researching it, he was the editor of Chicago Land Magazine, and he did have an editorial staff working for him, and they contributed a lot of information and services. Some of these people are Ron Offen, Ralph Canaday, Elliot Ellentuck, Tom Stack, Jack Lane, Bob Conley. There were also some newspaper men that contributed information. There was Ray Brennan of the Chicago Sun-Times, a dude named William Tubby Toms of the Indianapolis Star, who actually knew Dillinger back in 1933-34, and he sat down and talked to Nash about some of this stuff. Nash also interviewed dozens of people connected with the case and a lot of forensic experts who shed a bunch of light on all these weird things that are happening. Another huge person, and pretty much the reason that Nash started on this, was Emil Wanatka Jr. Now, if you listen to that first three-part series, which if you have not listened to the first three-part series that I did two years ago, please stop this now, go listen to that series, because there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of names going around, stuff like that. Go back, listen to those three episodes, then come back here. Now, he got a lot of information from Wanatka Jr. and his father, Wanatka Sr., and that's what started this whole investigative thing. Apparently, Evelyn Frechette, known as Billy, also gave a one-time interview to Nash as well, and this is, I believe, the only interview she ever did regarding John Dillinger. Another person who was involved in this was Dr. Charles Parker. He's a physician who received the body at the morgue and fixed the time of its arrival. Now this, according to Nash, is vital information that established the fact that no fingerprints were taken on the date on a planted fingerprint card, which was used later by the FBI to allegedly prove that Dillinger had been killed. There are also other important interviews that he cites. Doris Lockerman, who was Melvin Purvis's secretary in the Chicago FBI office at the time that John Dillinger was killed and when the FBI was hunting him. Another person is Mae Jeffers, who was a close friend and neighbor of the Dillinger family. Another person is Louis Scalfo, who was a barber who shaved the Dillinger imposter in Chicago shortly before the Biograph shooting. Professor Andre Monsons, which is one of the country's leading experts on fingerprints at the time of this publication. Sid Hansick and Dr. J.J. Kearns, who finally made arrangements, and they provided a copy of the original autopsy performed upon the man that was shot at the Biograph in 1934. An autopsy report, which was actually lost for 50 years until this book came out and was published. There are also a lot of ex-FBI agents, federal officials, who helped out J. Robert Nash. And of course, they still wish to remain anonymous for obvious reasons. And then he thanks his typist, Sandy Horries. So, this is how this all went down. 
In the spring of 1968, J. Robert Nash was taking a little vacation in the northern woods of Wisconsin, and he was driving past Little Bohemia Lodge. Now, as you guys remember, that is where the infamous shootout happened between Purvis and absolutely nobody. A bunch of FBI agents pretty much shot the shit out of this lodge, shot up a car, killed an innocent man, wounded some others. And, uh, I mean, it was a total disaster, and that will play a little bit of a factor later on as well. So Nash is taking a little side trip. He's going to Little Bohemia Lodge, and uh, he had always heard about Dillinger when he was a kid, and of course he was fascinated. Who wasn't? So he decides to stop at the lodge and check out this little Dillinger museum that they have going on there. Now, I'm not 100% sure you would actually call this a Dillinger Museum, but it was labeled as such because after the Little Bohemia shootout, Emil Winatka Sr. took some of the stuff that they had left behind and he put it in this tiny little cottage near the main lodge and basically made it a tourist attraction and he called it the Dillinger Museum. So Nash goes up and uh, he ends up talking to... Emil Winotka Jr. And Winotka Jr. is like, why do you want to see this stuff? I can let you in if you want, but why? And Nash is like, you know what? I, maybe I want to write a little piece for the ma this magazine that I work for. Now, Nash was kind of bullshitting, but he was like, you know what? If there's some cool shit in here, I maybe I will write a, write a cool little article for this magazine. So he gives Winotka his card and... Winotka sees that he's from Chicago, and they do their introductions and shit. So again, he asks if he could go go check out the museum. Winotka Jr. goes and he gets his key. While they're doing that, he shows Nash the uh, the front windows of the lodge where all the bullet holes and all this shit was still at. And basically what they did was they put partitions up in the window so they could save, like, the bullet holes that were in the glass and stuff. So they end up going to this tiny little cabin, open up the door, you know, and it hadn't been opened in years from what Nash said. And this was in 1968. Please keep this in mind. So they go inside, and they got all this nostalgia, you know, the newspaper articles from the Dillinger Gang escapes, and they got all this other shit going on. So Winotka looks at him, and he says, are you really going to do, like, a write-up? And Nash is like, yeah, I was thinking about it. Winotka Jr. looks at him, and he says, are you going to be here for a while? And Nash says, yeah, why? And he says, I'd like to show you something. I have to go somewhere and get it. If you're going to do a story, I think you should see it. Nash said he seemed really, really nervous. And then he replied, yeah, I'd be glad to stick around. So, Winotka says, I'll be right back. Goes in his fucking car, pulls out of the driveway, takes off down the road, <laughs> right? So, Nash is just kind of walking around inside this uh, little makeshift museum up at Little Bohemia Lodge. Checking out some of the stuff, you know, some of the clothes. There's a bunch of clothes in there. There was a little, you know, little tin can that said donations, you know, because they really didn't charge to walk around in there and see shit at the time. So a little while later, Winotka Jr. comes back. He tells Nash to join him back in the lodge, and he's holding this large brown envelope. And they go in the lodge, and they go to this little office. They sit down, and he opens up this envelope. And Winotka looks at him and says, I got this several years ago. It's a letter and a picture. Here. 
And Nash looks at this picture, and it's an old man. He's staring at the camera, said his mouth was kind of sagged, his nose was big, and his ears were a little pointed. But he said his eyes, he noticed his eyes because they were very fierce. Now this later, now this letter was dated July 30th, 1963, and it was postmarked from California. And here's what it said. Dear Sir, I am sending a letter and photo of Dillinger as he looks today for you to place on exhibit in your museum. The man shot was James Lawrence. He told the woman in red, Anna Sage, he was Dillinger. After the shooting, Dillinger moved to Hollywood, where he has worked ever since under an assumed name. J. Edgar Hoover stated, quote, There is every indication that the man shot is Dillinger, except the proof. It's customary to send in to headquarters the fingerprints of every man shot by the FBI, but no fingerprints of Dillinger have come in spite of a regulation burial. End quote. The fingerprints were taken of the man shot, but they did not match those of Dillinger. Therefore, they were not sent in, because if they were, the FBI would then have to admit the wrong man was killed. Dillinger's sister, Audrey, said she could positively identify her brother by a scar on his leg. After viewing the body, she said, There is no question in my mind. Bury him. But what she was really looking for was a birthmark, which was not there. But naturally, by saying this, she protected both Dillinger and the FBI. The man shot had black hair and brown eyes, and weighed 170 pounds, too large for Dillinger. Yours sincerely, John H. Dillinger. So when Nash read this letter, he looked up at Winotka Jr., and they were just staring at each other for a minute, and he says, this is incredible. Like, who else has seen this? And Winotka Jr. says, uh, my lawyer looked at it, he checked on it. What has he found? Not much. He seems to feel there's some truth to it. Why? Winotka just kind of shrugged. <laughs> and, uh, so Nash says, have you shown this to the FBI? And Winotka just kind of smiled at him and was like, are you kidding? So he just stares at this picture in this letter. And he rereads it a few times. They tried to take a picture of both the letter and the picture. But because they were in this office, it's 1968, apparently the lighting wasn't good. Uh, Nash said that his equipment wasn't up to it. So he looks at Winotka and he's like kind of freaking out. Because he's like, shit dude, I, I want to take proof. So he looks at Winotka and he goes, would you let me have these? And Wanaka goes, are you going to do a story? Nash says, I'm certainly going to look into this. So Wanaka told him he could have the letter because he already had a copy of it, but to return the picture because it was the only one. Nash looks at him and says, do you, do you have any idea why he sent this to you? And uh, Wanaka's like, I, I don't know. I, I guess it was for the museum or something. And uh, <laughs> so all this shit is going through Nash's head. And Nash was under the assumption, because this is what he had always heard, was that the Dillinger case was strictly an FBI matter. Everything was thoroughly recorded and documented. It was a huge thing for the FBI, because this was the case and the person that they built the FBI's reputation off of. This is where they got the G-Man, you know, the, the gangbusters. They were going to end all this prohibition gangster shit. So Nash, you know, they both walk outside. He starts asking Wanatka a couple more questions. Wanatka was just a kid when all that went down, and he's trying to remember like 30 years in the past. 
So he really couldn't remember shit. So he looks at him and says, you know what? You ought to stop by and see my father. He's got all kinds of stories about Dillinger and that bunch. And J. Robert Nash is like, you know, he's still alive? He's like, yeah. Just lives in a couple cottages down the street, right up the road. Go on over. He's like, he loves to talk about that stuff. So J. Robert Nash, like, goes up to this little cottage. And uh, he shows up, and they introduce themselves. And he meets an 80-year-old Emil Winotka Sr. And uh, he's there with his wife and stuff. And they start talking about all the shit from April of 1934. And he brings out an old stack of photographs. And he brings out a stack of old pictures. And it's really weird because he looks at the very first photograph and Winotka Sr. like grabs it and he shoves it at the bottom real quick and he kind of like takes it away from him. And Nash notices that the picture that he saw, he's like, yeah, the guy was a little bit heavier set. You know, he was wearing just a regular shirt. You know, he had his collar up. He was a fair haired guy. But he said the face on that guy was John Dillinger. So Winotka Sr. really doesn't think much of it. And he just kind of just starts rattling off all these stories. So Nash kind of looks at him and says, Hey, uh, you know, your son gave me this picture and this letter. And Winotka Sr. just kind of looked at him, gave him a shitty look. And he's like, You're crazy. That's crazy. Dillinger's dead. Everybody knows that. Where did you even get that? And Nash is like, I got it from your son, dude. He basically goes off. That's crazy. Look at that picture. He doesn't even look like Dillinger. You know, and you got to think, though, there's a 30-year difference between this when this picture was taken and sent as opposed to the last picture that we know of of John Dillinger. And he repeatedly insisted that the man in the picture from the letter that uh, Winotka Jr. had gotten he keeps insisting, he's like, that's not him, he's dead, you're crazy. Nash, at this point, is kind of confused. He keeps rereading this letter, and he's like, man, what the what the fuck, dude? He's like, could this, you know, be a real thing? So, he goes, and he starts driving back to Chicago. And on a little side note, there is a legend that John Dillinger had actually buried in a suitcase on the property of... Little Bohemia, $200,000 in cash. Now, as we talked about in that first three-part series, there is a very, very great, great chance that Winotka Sr. knew some of these guys before they even got to the lodge. As it turns out, Louis Paquette, who was John Dillinger's lawyer, was also, at one point in time, Winotka Sr.'s lawyer. So there's a nice little tidbit of information for you. So it's not just like they were two strangers when John Dillinger showed up there at Little Bohemia. So let's take this for instance. How easy was it to disappear in 1934? <laughs> Alright? Yeah, the Great Depression. Everybody is out of work. Farmers, businessmen, shopkeepers, factory workers, everybody had gone fucking bankrupt. Everybody's begging for work. Everybody's drifting around looking for any fucking job that they can get. Damn far cry from the times we live in now, to be perfectly honest with you, almost a hundred years later. So it's not that hard to disappear when people are drifting from town to town. There's no identification. Everybody's just 
working for basic slave wages, anything that they can do, eating any meal that they can find for the most part. So it's like total chaos, right? There's no social security cards. There's no credit cards. There's no systems in place to verify anybody's existence. None of that shit existed. There was literally nobody on paper. You could change your name and just go somewhere else and be somebody else and live out the rest of your life. It's not that far-fetched of a theory. So it brings up a good point. If Dillinger was killed outside the biograph, like the most famous gangster from that era, who would be looking for him if he was dead? The FBI is not going to be looking for him. They're going to close the books. They're going to take that W. They're going to write it all the way to the bank. You know what I mean? That's great publicity. That's the shit that J. Edgar Hoover loved. And if they are going to look for him, they're not going to do it publicly. But on that note too, John Dillinger was all over the news. He was in every paper. His picture was fucking everywhere. And we do have to point out the simple fact that when he got his plastic surgery that we know of from that first three-part series, after he was shot and there were some talks that the guy didn't look like Dillinger, the guy who was shot outside the biograph, you know, the FBI wrote it up as, well, I mean, the guy had plastic surgery on his face, you know? But in all honesty, when Dillinger got that plastic surgery, he was so fucking mad at the doctor he wanted to kill him. Because he took a look in the mirror and he said, you didn't even do anything. Like, I don't even look any different. Like, literally all he did was he took a fucking mole off and he filled in the indent in his chin. That's about it, dude. You know what I mean? So that's why Dillinger grew that stupid mustache. So the way that the FBI, the federal government, under FDR, they were trying to control the narrative of the FBI just being infallible. Like... They were perfect. They didn't fuck up, especially after Little Bohemia, because that was a huge fuck up, and they couldn't do that again. So basically, it got to a point where J. Edgar Hoover was in control over everything. Whatever the FBI said was the final word. You didn't question it. This is how it was. Nobody questioned the FBI. Politicians did not question the FBI. The media didn't question them. If somebody would have spotted Dillinger out there... And called the FBI and said, hey, uh, there's a guy who looks like Dillinger out here in California working in some fucking machine shop. FBI is going to be like, you're crazy. The guy died in 1934. It's not him. For several reasons, one of which being J. Edgar Hoover can't be wrong. That's impossible. You know, and they're not going to admit that they fucked up again. And also, it should be known that according to J. Robert Nash, which we'll get into more details about in uh, some of the later episodes about this, uh, the man that died at the biograph, there was no surgery that was ever performed on him. So that raises another question, right? And also, if we know anything about Dillinger from those first three episodes, Dillinger was not a dumb guy. Dillinger was extremely intelligent, and he knew how to plan ahead. He planned everything ahead. He planned it 10 times over. He ran it 50 times over in his head. I mean, this guy planned ahead so much, he had gas cans set off of the road of almost any back road covering up through Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa. So, 
you know, to think that he wouldn't plan something like this out, uh, you know, that's, I don't think that's a possibility, right? We also have to take into consideration, in this year and a half, Dillinger was smart enough to get away and avoid cops and get away from getting arrested and still break out of jails and avoid all these cops in seven different states, and that included the FBI. So don't think for a second that John Dillinger was just a dumb hick from Indiana. He was not. So while J. Robert Nash is researching all this shit for 15 years, I mean, he's talking to eyewitnesses who were at the Biograph Theater. He's talking to local and federal authorities, everybody. But in 1979, he ends up meeting this really old bank robber who used to be a really close friend of John Dillinger. I will say this. I don't know who this guy, like, I know his name, but I have never fucking heard it. You know what I'm saying? So when he says he was a super close associate, I don't know. I don't think Dillinger had that many close friends. But this guy explained to Nash what really happened after the whole Biograph Theater incident on July 22nd, 1934. And it is one hell of a story. I am not even going to bullshit you. And Nash himself even states uh, in this book, in the Dillinger investigation, especially historians, should have been most cautious in accepting the facts that came most easily to hand because powerful people had a strong vested interest in such an acceptance. And that was the last excerpt of the foreword of uh, J. Robert Nash's book. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, we're going to hit you with some facts, we're going to hit you with some information, and then over the course of the next one or two episodes, we're going to do more in-depth and we're going to break that shit down. Because researching this... I'm probably more critical than any of you because I want this to be true. I'm trying to disprove it the most I can or the best I can, I should say. And it's hard It's hard to do because I cannot say this enough. This information is based on one person's research. This person did all the interviews, went everywhere. I, I am not even lying. This guy literally in 68 and 69... In those two years, dude, he went all over the fucking place just interviewing all these people himself. But like I said, there's no audio of it. There's no video of it. And I understand, like, his mindset. He was just trying to write this shit down and do his research and stuff like that. I get that. But when it came towards the end of the research or after even a couple years, at, you know, while he was writing his first book, the Dead or Alive book, like... Get some form of documentation other than your word. We have to be able to corroborate this information. And most of this information cannot be corroborated. But that does not mean that this information is not factual. Because there are a lot of fucking facts. This dude talked to a lot of people. And not just eyewitnesses. He talked to forensics experts on the bullet trajectory, you know, from John Dillinger's fucking wounds. He talked to everybody. So there is a lot of fact in his research. I'm just saying, you have to keep an open mind and listen to what I'm saying, 
but I want you guys to stay a little bit skeptical as well. So here's some more shit, okay? The craziest thing about J. Robert Nash's research and his two books is that the FBI has never refuted anything around his theory. And he's actually written more than those two books just about the shooting at the biograph, right? The FBI has never refuted any of those facts, which is fucking weird. All they will say, which is very rarely, is that John Dillinger died at the biograph in 1934. J. Robert Nash presents 20 years worth of books and research, and that's all the fucking FBI will say. So, with that being said, we're going to take a small break here, alright? Meet me back here in a few minutes, go get some drinks, I'm going to play a few commercials, I'm going to drop some shit on you, so I need your full attention when you come back, alright? I'll meet you guys back here in a few minutes. Alright, and we're back. In order to try to explain some of this shit, we do have to build some context. We do have to provide some of that. So let's talk about the FBI back in the late 1920s, early 1930s. G. Edgar Hoover, piece of shit in my book, took over the Bureau in 1924. He replaced a guy named William Burns. At the time, the Bureau was crazy corrupt, all right? There were crooked FBI agents all over the place. There was blackmail, extortion, all kinds of shit. So when Hoover took over, he basically instituted absolute control over everything. He had control over all the agents. All of them had to report directly to him from all the field offices. There were no major federal cases closed until Hoover closed them. And he would not close them until he reviewed each fucking case daily. Like, he would get them in every single day and he would review every fucking one of them personally. And these are cases coming in from FBI agents all over the place, out in field offices, right? Hoover personally announced or approved all press announcements on every fucking case. He had total control over what they call the mouth and the words of the FBI regarding anything that was in the press. So he was trying to build up the FBI as just the baddest dudes on the planet. They were fucking invincible. They didn't mess up. If you fucked up and you got under the watch of the FBI, you were going to go down no matter what. So he was trying to like manipulate all the, the public image, all the press, all the newspapers, the radio, everything. And he did this by lying and fucking cheating, as we know. I'm sorry, I'm not a huge Hoover fan. I will probably do an episode on this dude eventually. But anybody, if your history teacher did their job when you were in school, you know that Hoover was a pretty big piece of shit. Now, when I say he cheated and lied, here's a for instance. He issued a statement and reiterated the fact later on in other articles, that it was in fact FBI agents that captured Machine Gun Kelly, who was another gangster. And he said that they captured him in a rooming house, and when they burst through the door of his room, George Machine Gun Kelly, according to J. Edgar Hoover, 
stood there quaking in his underwear, pleading, don't shoot, G-Men, don't shoot. That is an absolute fucking lie, all right? Machine Gun Kelly was captured by Memphis, Tennessee police detective named Sergeant William Rainey, and he slipped into Kelly's bedroom on a night in 1933. He put a fucking gun to his head and woke him up. Machine Gun Kelly woke up and said, well... I've been expecting you fellows. <laughs> you know what I mean? He fucking knew he was screwed. So Rainey took him down to the Memphis police station, and then they booked him and turned him over to the FBI, who were waiting at those headquarters. Absolutely none of them were present when Machine Gun Kelly was captured. So there's a nice little for instance on how J. Edgar Hoover would bullshit and stretch the truth to make the FBI seem just crazy badass. And I mean, I'll give him one thing. He had the right idea. Like, the intention, I get that. I totally understand that. But the funniest part is that, as we know, back then, the FBI didn't have jurisdiction over everything like they do now. Local authorities were the only ones who could arrest suspects. And then they would turn them over to agents. FBI couldn't go anywhere unless local authorities were like, yeah, we need your help. Come in and help us. You have permission. Like, that's how it worked back then. It's not like it is now. The only reason Dillinger was an exception is because he violated the Dyer Act. And uh, that was when he broke out of Crown Point and stole the sheriff's car and drove it across the state line. Driving a stolen vehicle over a state line was in violation of the Dyer Act. That's what made it a federal offense. That's what made the FBI have jurisdiction in Dillinger's case. Like, before that, they couldn't do shit, alright? So when it came to Dillinger, you had all of these Robin Hood-type stories. You know, he goes into the bank in Greencastle, Indiana, sees a farmer standing in front of a teller with some cash. Dillinger says, is that your money or the bank's? Farmer says, this is my life savings. I just drew it out of the bank. Dillinger, he's farm boy. He said, put it in your pocket. And this is literally a documented event. Like, that shit happened. So, Dillinger ended up becoming this huge national hero. Because FDR just got elected. Okay. Hoover's trying to build the FBI into this superpower government force that can just do anything they want whenever they fucking want. They fucking both hated Dillinger. FDR was calling Hoover every single fucking day. You better do something. You better get this man, Edgar. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Hoover, in turn, was, it was the trickle-down effect. He's putting all this shit on Purvis because Purvis was this young dude out here on the ground trying to make a name for himself. You know what I mean? He had something to prove, too. So it's just like this whole trickle-down thing. FDR is busting J. Edgar Hoover's balls like crazy to get Dillinger no matter how you do it at any cost. And in turn, Hoover's looking at Purvis. Get him whatever the fuck you have to do. And that's partly one of the reasons that the shootout at Little Bohemia happened. And it was a total fucking disaster. And it was because Purvis had all this pressure and it was because Hoover had all this pressure from FDR. Because people were looking up to John Dillinger and people who were robbing fucking banks. Because all of the press, all of these newspapers, all the radio, they're like, hey, all these banks failed the country and totally fucked over 
all these people, all these hardworking people, and you have these guys like Dillinger who are out here robbing them. Like, fuck them, man. You know what I mean? So, like, they had people cheering them on. That's why the public loved John Dillinger. And that is why the government absolutely hated him. They were making him fucking look bad. They were making them look bad at every turn. And the government could not get John Dillinger. They couldn't do it. And I know it seems like I'm going on a tangent, but I'm not. Like, this is all pertaining to, you know, what's going on and it's uh, it's context, okay? Now, the whole thing at Little Bohemia is one of the things that probably set the Biograph Theater incident in motion. Because Hoover, like I said, had told Purvis to get Dillinger or resign. So after the whole Little Bohemia fucking disaster, you had an innocent man that was killed. You had two other men that were badly wounded. And you had like 20 trigger-happy FBI agents that just shot the shit out of anything and everything. And Purvis, I mean, I, I respect the dude for being so ambitious. I really do. But he was irresponsible. He had no fucking clue what he was doing out there. But he is getting pressured into all these crazy-ass things by Hoover. Because Hoover wants it done now. So when news about Little Bohemia broke out, all the public starts denouncing Hoover. They start denouncing Purvis. They start denouncing the FBI. And they start calling them a bunch of gun-happy goons. Saying they all need to resign. They're hurting innocent people. They're out here shooting up shit for no reason. So Hoover fucking freaks out, right? And he tells Purvis, if he didn't get Dillinger quick, he would personally preside at Melvin Purvis's public crucifixion. <laughs> okay? So, is it so strange that Melvin Purvis, in July, when he's approached by a guy named Sergeant Martin Zarkovich, who is one of the most crooked cops in East Chicago, Indiana Police Department, and one of the funniest things is uh, J. Robert Nash actually met and sat down and talked to Martin Zarkovich about this, and uh, the meeting ended up abruptly ending because Martin Zarkovich threatened to shoot J. Robert Nash if he asked any more fucking questions about this shit. I don't know why I find that amusing. I think it's awesome. But Zarkovich was a completely crooked piece of shit cop. But yeah, like J. Robert Nash shows up, starts poking around, asking questions about Melvin Purvis and Anna Sage and John Dillinger and fucking Zarkovich just stood up put his hand on the butt of his pistol, which was in his fucking pants, and dude's like 80 years old, straight up threatened to shoot him. But how this works is Zarkovich was an acquaintance with Anna Sage. It was more than an acquaintance. Like, she was Zarkovich's mistress for years, okay? And what it is is he protected her bordello operations in Lake County, Indiana, uh, until she became so notorious she had to actually move her bordello operation to chicago she was a madam all right so zarkovich tells purvis that sage told him that one of her girls who was polly hamilton is seeing a man that she thought was dillinger zarkovich told purvis that he could arrange for him to talk to sage about it if he liked purvis asked zarkovich why he was doing all this you know, trying to help the FBI. Everybody knows Zarkovich is a dirty fucking cop. And Zarkovich said that he wanted to get Dillinger because 
Dillinger had killed a good friend of his, which was a police officer in Gary, Indiana, during a recent bank robbery, which was completely bullshit. Like, Dillinger didn't rob that bank. Zarkovich did not have any fucking friends on the police force because all of his friends were fucking mobsters and gangsters because he was on the take. So Zarkovich said, I'm going to set up Dillinger. And he told Purvis, I want to be the only person to shoot and kill John Dillinger. But I'll give the FBI all the credit for it. That way I can get my revenge for him killing my friend. And you guys will get all the credit. You guys will be famous. So Purvis, of course, is willing to do fucking anything at this point. And he meets with Anna Sage. Who, as we know, is the, you know, the woman in red. And we also know that she wasn't wearing red. She was actually wearing orange. So Purvis meets with Anna Sage a few nights later in Lincoln Park. Purvis walked to the car in which she was sitting in. And Zarkovich was the one there. He's like, yeah, she's over there in that car. And she told him that she thought the man seeing her girl, Polly, was John Dillinger. Purvis didn't even care to fucking look at Dillinger before that. He just trusted Anna Sage. And she told Purvis that she was going to go to the movies soon. And she would call him at his office and let him know which theater that they would attend. A lot of this shit was actually recorded by Melvin Purvis's secretary, who I uh, noted as one of the sources for J. Robert Nash. So Anna Sage calls Purvis a couple days later and tells him that Polly and her man, who would supposedly be Dillinger, would be going that night, July 22nd, 1934, to either the Marlboro or the Biograph Theaters. And they didn't know which one. Here is a funny thing about that. Melvin Purvis never bothered to check what was showing at those two theaters that night. The biograph was showing the Clark Gable film Manhattan Melodrama, which was a gangster flick. The Marlboro was playing a Shirley Temple movie. So, there's a good fucking chance I don't think John Dillinger is going to go to watch Shirley Temple film, okay? So the reason that they did this and said that he didn't know what movie theater to go to is because only Purvis and Zarkovich knew what Anna Sage looked like. Zarkovich made sure that Purvis met with Anna Sage only one time and alone in Lincoln Park. And she was going to be the identification person. Purvis never positively identified that John Dillinger was the guy seeing her girl, but he knew what Anna Sage looked like. So when they would see her at the movie, they would automatically think that any guy with her that remotely resembled John Dillinger would in fact be John Dillinger. So Zarkovich tells Melvin Purvis, I'm going to go to the Marlboro with some of your agents and wait there. If she shows up, we'll let them go into the theater and call you to come over with your other agents and I'll shoot him when he comes out of the theater. You go to the biograph and if they show up there, you call me and wait until I get there and I will shoot him when he comes out of the theater. The whole kicker to this was Zarkovich knew that Anna Sage, Polly Hamilton, and the guy who they referred to as James Lawrence were going to the biograph the entire time. He wanted 
Melvin Purvis to take responsibility for identifying Anna Sage and the man she would show up with, which would make the identification the sole responsibility of the FBI. So whatever happened after that was on the FBI, and it would be on the shoulders of Melvin Purvis himself and not on Zarkovich. Pretty fucking slick, right? It makes sense, though, because I do know that Purvis was the only one that met with Anna Sage. And before we get into a little bit more of that, let's uh, go ahead and take another break. I'll meet you guys back here in a few minutes. I'll see you soon. So, here's how it goes down. Sage, Hamilton, and this other man showed up at the biograph. And this was the first time that Purvis or anyone in the FBI ever saw that man when he arrived in the theater and went inside. And like I said, they saw him from a distance. They did not positively ID John Dillinger before they shot this person. They are going strictly on the word of Anna Sage and Zarkovich. So they see them from a distance going into the theater. They go inside and uh, Purvis... Called up Zarkovich, kept his promise, said, hey, get on down here to the biograph, they're over here. So Zarkovich waits down the street at a store entrance, like in the little walkway, you know, in the dark. Purvis stood outside the theater with a cigar in his mouth, and that, as we know, it was the signal. When he saw Sage, Hamilton, and the man leave the theater at about 10.20 p.m., he lit that cigar, which was his prearranged signal, to Zarkovich that the trio were approaching him. Now, I will say this, like in an interview, Melvin Purvis did say that he positively ID'd Dillinger when he walked out because he said he knew that face anywhere. I believe uh, that's how it went down. I'm going to have to re-listen to my own part three episode, but we're still going to get into this like further in the next two episodes, so it doesn't matter anyway. This is how they say it went down, or J. Robert Nash says it went down. So when they passed Zarkovich... The women saw him, and they dropped back, and he simply walked up behind this guy, pushed him down, fired two bullets into the back of his head, which was actually proven by the autopsy, and they murdered him at close range, then walked away, and Purvis and his agents rushed to the scene. Now, as we do know, like I said from that first three-part series, there is some contradictions on who took the first shot, who shot this, who shot that, from eyewitness accounts. So, is this so unbelievable? You know, that's for you to decide. So there's a dead guy with two bullets through his head, and he's face down on the cement. Purvis kind of walks up, puts his foot, rolls the body over, and when he looked at his face, according to several persons present, including a reporter, Purvis said to himself out loud, that doesn't look like Dillinger. Then he realized he said it out loud, And he just kind of brushed it off and he said that the uh, facial appearances of him were probably because he had that good plastic surgery. And that's why he said, well, that doesn't look like Dillinger. So at this time, Purvis is sitting here thinking, man, I fucked up again. This is little Bohemia all over. I just killed another innocent fucking guy. And to be honest with you, like little Bohemia, Purvis blamed that shit on anybody else shooting a gun except himself, all right? That's how that went down. So according to J. Robert Nash, a few hours later, he really did learn that he had killed the wrong guy when two physicians who were top pathologists and Nash interviewed both of them. 
told him that the man killed outside the biograph could not have been John Herbert Dillinger. So Purvis finds Zarkovich and he's like, what the fuck, man? And Zarkovich is just like acting all surprised and shit. He's like, Anna Sage must have conned me, man. She must have lied to me. So what he did was gave Purvis a planted fingerprint card with Dillinger's prints on them, which was from a Chicago Police Department fingerprint card, not an FBI card. And Zarkovich would definitely have access to something like that, especially since Dillinger had gone through that area and been fingerprinted. So Purvis takes this card and in his own handwriting writes FBI, so that people thought that the prints came from the FBI. So it looked like the prints had been taken by FBI agents of the dead guy. Now, J. Robert Nash talked to the physicians and the coroner's people who were in charge of the body, and they said no fingerprints were taken of that man. While all this is going on, Hoover's fucking freaking out, waiting for Purvis's report, and it never showed up. He's calling everybody in Chicago, man. Trying to get a hold of Melvin Purvis and he can't get a hold of this dude. So about 20 hours or so after the shooting, Purvis tells Hoover on the phone that there are some serious problems with the case. And he was not sending in his report the usual way, but would personally bring it to Washington to deliver it to Hoover. So Purvis um, immediately says the FBI had shot and killed public enemy number one. Right? And this is before the, the Chicago police came to pick up the body. Now, the guy who drove the Chicago police wagon to pick up the body was also a friend of Zarkovich's. He arrived to take the body to the county morgue, and Melvin Purvis was a hero of the FBI. <laughs> so, Purvis arrived in Washington a couple days later, and Hoover, of course, was waiting for him at the train station. The two of them were photographed together when Purvis arrived that night at the Bureau headquarters. J. Robert Nash has one of those photographs. See, that's the kind of evidence I like right there. When Purvis handed him this nine-page report, Hoover didn't know what to think. Because the fucking first line said, This case contains discrepancies that we cannot explain and for which, no doubt, there will be serious ramifications. Now... The problem with this is this document no longer exists in the FBI files. Which, if you were the FBI, would you want that document existing? Probably fucking not. But, some of those discrepancies are going to be talked about in the following episodes. Now, these discrepancies are also supported by the autopsy that was conducted by two top pathologists before a student class of more than 20 persons with a recording nurse in attendance documenting the statements of each physician, the first making the initial examination, the second checking what the first identified and reaffirming it to the recording nurse. Now, there is nothing really weird about the autopsy because the physicians had already told Melvin Purvis that the corpse was most likely not John Dillinger. Now, they recorded the eyes of the dead man as brown. Dillinger's were blue or gray. I will say this, though. When the autopsy report was found in 1984, the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office actually took a look at it. This was back in 1984, and it was looked at by uh, 
guy named Dr. Robert Stein. And like I said, he was a Cook County medical examiner at the time in 1984. He straight up says that, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. The whole autopsy is genuine. This is a fascinating autopsy. It is definitely the real deal. But when the whole thing about the eye color got brought up, uh, even Stein said this really isn't a big deal because after death there can be some clouding of the cornea and you could have difficulty telling the color of the iris, which does make sense. So I did have to throw that little thing in there. They also found none of Dillinger's well-documented scars and bullet wounds. They took out the heart and closely examined it and determined that the dead man had a rheumatic heart condition since childhood and was terminal close to the time of his being shot to death. Now, Dillinger could never have played semi-professional baseball as a second baseman or even leaped these six and seven foot fucking cages and banks, which he did all the time if he had that heart condition. The body was also shorter and heavier than John Dillinger. The body was in the prone position when shot, and the person had been executed, which does follow Zarkovich's story of pushing him down first before shooting him in the back of the head. And this was actually confirmed by pathologists because they accurately described the path of the bullets. There are more discrepancies, and like I said, we'll uh, be talking about that later, okay? So... J. Robert Nash did get a copy of the autopsy through one of the pathologists that conducted it a bunch of years later. And like I said, this pathologist kept copies of that particular autopsy. He held on to them, even though he had done thousands of other ones. And he told J. Robert Nash that he made copies and hung on to them because he knew somebody would come along someday to dig into this story. Fucking interesting, right? So another guy that gets brought into this is a guy named James Henry Audet. He was known as Blackie. While the autopsy was being conducted, Blackie Audet, who was a West Coast bank robber, and he was one of the last Dillinger associates. While the autopsy was being done, he goes to a cabin in Aurora, Illinois, and there was a man waiting in there, and he told him, Well, you're dead now, John. Let's get the hell out of here. Now, here's the deal when it comes to this particular source, and this is a huge source when it's going to come to the next two episodes. I have never really heard of this guy being associated with John Dillinger before reading Nash's work, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm not saying it's a good thing either. I'm kind of impartial to that. This dude gave Nash a bunch of background information on this case. All right, so... Dillinger, according to Audette, refused to leave right away for the West Coast. He first wanted to make sure that he was not only dead, but securely underground in a way he could not be recovered and identified by another man at any other time. And as we know, John Dillinger was encased in a shitload of concrete. Now here's a couple little interesting facts. A few days after the body of the man shot at the Biograph Theater was buried at a cemetery in Indianapolis, which is a Crown Hill, I believe, if I remember correctly. I've actually been there. I've visited uh, Dillinger's burial site a couple different times. But um, So after this body is buried, 
Dillinger's father, John Wilson Dillinger, came to the cemetery with a bunch of trucks, including a truck filled with concrete and a shitload of workmen, and he told the curator that he was worried that the body of his son might be stolen by grave robbers or people looking for souvenirs and shit, which is not out of the realm of possibility, I will say that. The interesting fact is that the curator knew that John Dillinger Sr. was broke. He didn't even have enough money to pay the $50 embalming fee for the guy that was dead and in that grave. But all of a sudden, he had enough money to pay for a dozen guys to dig this body up. He had enough money for trucks, steel, iron, and a concrete mixing truck. So the older Dillinger had the corpse dug up and had concrete mixed with metal and wire poured in slabs below, above, and at the sides and completely around the casket. And then it was reinterred. So Nash goes and he interviewed the curator of the cemetery years and years later. Uh, during that 15 year stint he was researching. <laughs> the guy said, get that body out of there and examine it? Impossible. You would have to blast it out of there with dynamite. And what would be left would not fill up a small cookie jar. <laughs> And to be honest with you, it's probably fucking true. I was, that's kind of what I was wondering when we were going to, you know, if I was going to be involved in that documentary and we were talking about it. And I mean, obviously we have jackhammers and all kinds of crazy shit now, but the fact that the concrete was mixed with, uh, metal and steel and shit. Oh man, that would have been a pain in the ass. So when Nash told that to Blackie Audette years later, Blackie Audette said, that's why John wanted that body buried that way. In fact, when the work crew drove into that cemetery to pour all that iron, steel, and concrete around that dead guy, John and I were sitting in the back of one of those trucks, and we helped him do the job. And John had his name put on that headstone to read John H. Dillinger Jr. He wasn't a junior. There was no junior. His father's name was John Wilson Dillinger. John had that junior put on as a way of a joke that the man taking his place in that grave was a junior his own. That's pretty fucked up, but... And I mean, like, it does say junior at the end of it, so I don't know. But he said later that night afterward, Audette drove Dillinger West to Klamath Falls, Oregon, where he met and ended up marrying a young Native American girl, and that's when Audette gave Nash a picture of both of them taken around 1948, which he employed in one of his books, and which I actually have a picture of. It's a pretty grainy photo, not gonna lie. I will uh, probably just post that in the podcast group. I don't want to post that publicly. You know, I think it's fair if you want to see it. You can spend the 10 bucks on this book because it's fucking insanely good. And that is in the Dillinger Dossier book, by the way. So, that brings us to Who's the Dead Guy? Anna Sage and Polly Hamilton only knew him as James Lawrence. And we will get more in depth on him also in the future. He worked as a clerk at the Commodities Exchange on LaSalle Street. And there's no record of him there. He was not a well man, according to Audette, who claimed that he actually agreed for several thousand dollars to imply to Sage and Hamilton that he might be the infamous bank robber. So he was actually trying to get Blackie Audette 
for a couple thousand dollars to tell Sage and Polly Hamilton that he was Sean Dillinger just for clout or, you know, whatever kind of pseudo-fame. Either way, they say he was murdered by Zarkovich. And uh, according to Blackie Audette, like I said, I've never heard of this dude in anything that I ever researched on those first three episodes. But according to him, Zarkovich was paid $10,000 or more to set up the wrong man by Dillinger. And that makes him, Dillinger, and Audette, and most likely Sage, all parties to this whole conspiracy. Now, Martin Zarkovich made sure that Polly Hamilton disappeared and Anna Sage was deported, both of which are true. Directly after the death, Polly Hamilton did go into hiding. She disappeared for a fucking while, and Anna Sage was in fact deported. But apparently, J. Edgar Hoover had no problem with that, because he was trying to get rid of anyone associated with the case, including Purvis, because he ended up firing Purvis like the next year, dude. So supposedly that's how it all went down, right? And they basically all made sure that John Dillinger just stayed dead forever. But apparently he could not because uh, he started sending letters and pictures to several persons many, many years later. And he was basically telling everybody, hey, wrong man was shot outside the biograph. That wasn't me. Da 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 da. That's how J. Robert Nash came across one of those letters, which is the one that Emil Winotka Jr. gave him, and that's what he started this research on. According to J. Robert Nash, one of those letters was also sent to Melvin Purvis, and this was, according to J. Robert Nash, not me, the reason that Melvin Purvis ended up taking his own life all those years later. And this one, this one really fucking got me if this is true. Because there's a lot of weird shit going on with Dillinger's birth, okay? Like, Dillinger's sister, Audrey Dillinger, was 15 or 16, alright, when Dillinger was born. Now, according to Evelyn Frechette, Billy Frechette, who was Dillinger's girlfriend, when she gave the only interview ever to J. Robert Nash... She told him, which is what he was kind of suspicious about, was that Audrey Dillinger was not Dillinger's older sister, but actually his mother. This is why Audrey gave the phony identification of the dead man, so that she could protect her son. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not even saying, like, there's anything incestuous. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying, like... Is it possible? Yeah, because when John Dillinger was born, there's no real birth certificate. He was born by a midwife, and all it says is infant. There's not even a fucking name, you know what I mean? And when John Dillinger's mother, Molly, and I say mother with quotation marks, his mother Molly died, Audrey raised John until John Sr. got remarried, and even after that, Dude, everybody in the family said that Audrey looked after him more than her other kids, which would kind of make sense, you know, and apparently J. Robert Nash was kind of suspicious about that fact because of his research and shit, but yeah, I guess Evelyn Billy Frechette told him that, yeah, that was true, um, and like I said, I'm not even insinuating like anything incestuous, just the fact that 
the person who was supposedly his older sister wasn't actually his older sister. Unless maybe there was something weird. I don't know. But anyway, all I know is John Dillinger looks like his dad. I know his dad is his dad. So there's that. All right. So uh, when J. Robert Nash goes to talk to Zarkovich, he starts getting all fucking suspicious, right? And he straight up challenged Nash, dude. Like, Zarkovich is like 6'5", right? And he stands up, unbuttons his fucking holster and shit. He's got one hand on his gun. He's like, you telling me something's wrong here? That I did something wrong? Because uh, Nash was in there basically accusing him of, you know, fucking killing an innocent guy or whatever. Nash went ahead and was like, yeah, I just, I got the fuck out of there. That's probably a good idea. So, um, J. Robert Nash even went and interviewed, uh, Russell Clark, which was the last of the Dillinger gang released from prison. He went to Indianapolis and interviewed him, uh, and said he had been in touch with Audrey Dillinger, who lived in the area, and this was around Indianapolis. And, uh, when he met him, he said he already knew about Nash's story on Dillinger. And when Nash asked Clark where Dillinger might be living, he said, You seem to know everything else. How come you don't know that? Nash kind of looked at him and said, Should we try Southern California? And Russell Clark was like, Why there? Apparently, Audrey used to frequently go visit Southern California, even though there were no relatives living anywhere in that area. But she would go visit there quite frequently. So, Russell Clark says, go to Puenta, wise guy. You got the guts for everything else? Why not that? And Russell Clark actually died a short time after that. So, he gave him the name Puenta, California. And J. Robert Nash did go there. And he did meet up with a man in a dark room. Whether or not he thinks that's John Dillinger? Uh, That's for J. Robert Nash to decide. And as for this part one... That's all I fucking got for you because my voice is about to go. I've already had to record this episode twice because my processor took a shit the first time I recorded it. Didn't know it until I went to go edit, which is fucking great. I hate that shit. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I got part two, more than likely a part three. We're going to get into some more details. Like I said, I'm trying to be very, very impartial. As you heard, like I was interjecting little tidbits and facts, you know, as counterpoints to a lot of this because I'm trying to stay down the middle because above anything else, I want to, I want to know yes or no. I'm not trying to persuade you into shit. (laughs) I'm just trying to present you guys with all the facts, both sides of the argument, because here's the deal. You're not going to get that from a documentary. You're not going to get that from a fucking expedition unknown TV show. They all have an agenda. They're trying to push a certain agenda. I have no fucking agenda. Do I want John Dillinger to have lived past 1934? Fuck yeah, I do. But I'm not going to sit here and, like, exclude information to try to get you to agree with me. That's just not fucking right. So, with that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed. Again, I'm so tired. I'm going to drink a beer. I will see you folks on the flip side.